Hello and welcome to 52 List with Maria Seal. That's me. Today, I have a very, very special guest. It is Dr. Devin Price, who is a social psychologist, professor, and the author of the books Laziness Does Not Exist, Unmasking Autism, which I am very privileged to be in as well. And that's how we first connected. It was via the magical world of Instagram. Welcome to the show, <laughs> Devin. <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice that some good things have come out of Instagram, like like the yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the people yeah. that are actually mediated through the awful thing. Mm-hmm. I know. I feel like it's unmasking myself via Instagram has been a beautiful process. Uh, you know, I used Instagram in many ways to uh, try to fit into a culture and a world that didn't make sense for me. And then when I came out of that, yes, I lost a lot of followers, but then I gained a lot of community that felt actually right. When did yeah. you first gain your autism diagnosis? Um, so I found out I was autistic in my late 20s um, after I finished graduate school. And then I was really, really burnt out because I had been doing the thing that a lot of masked autistic people do and a lot of autistic people do, period, of I'm going to lean into the one thing that I'm good at because I don't understand people. I don't understand the world. I can't remember to feed myself and do basic life things, but I do have my intellect. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to really just define myself by my supposedly like intellectual accomplishments and what do you know a full life that does not make um, and so a lot of things kind of started coming off uh, a lot of the wheels started falling off the machine at that point um, which is how I kind of figured out that I was neurodivergent it's how I figured out I was trans you know it was just I went on a completely different career path a lot of things had to start being questioned at that point um, ultimately for the better but yeah it was it was a mess. A lot. What did you uh, get your undergrad in, and then masters? Yeah, my um, my undergrad was in. Um, I majored in um, psychology and political science, um, and then I came to Loyola here in Chicago for a PhD program in political psychology, which was what I was really interested in at the time. I was really interested in attitude change and persuasion and um, an open-mindedness. That's what a lot of my like academic work was on. Was hmm. how, do you, how do people go about changing their own point of view or being open to new worldviews? And that was a very difficult thing to work on and study during a time when just the problem of people not being receptive to new information was only seemingly getting worse and worse. Um, yeah. so, so I really departed from that pretty dramatically in, in the work that I did afterwards. Um, in, in terms of studying things like burnout and, and productivity instead, because I also just saw acad academia as just a really punishing environment, a very achievement-oriented environment. And so um, moving past that and learning to question it kind of led me down the path of studying, okay, how does how does motivation actually work and what's actually good for people yeah. who are choosing to build you know lives that are in line with their values and rewarding to them, things like that. Well, it's interesting how... <laughs> It's so interesting, I think, especially for neurodivergent people, like we go into studying things where we're like, I just need, how do I understand people? And is it through this lens? Like for you, it was understanding like, yeah, even studying manipulation, that is fascinating to me because there is this false perception that autistic people are manipulative. Uh, wrong. No, we're just trying to figure out what is this system 
what what game are people playing? I don't mm-hmm. understand it. It seems like you're being manipulative. So I'll study it to try and understand how to function within it. Like I used to, before I was diagnosed, I uh, used to watch Big Brother a lot and just study people. I'm like, wow, this is this is how people get ahead. This is how people... I don't understand why we do this or why we function this way. And then also to study all of that within the political realm. I think that's so beautiful that uh, and interesting, fascinating that you went that route to try and understand. It's like you from a young age were being like, I need to advocate for myself and for others. So where do I go first? Yeah, yeah. I got interested in psychology in the first place for the exact reason that you described. I got really fascinated with it in high school when I was on the debate team. And a lot of times we were citing psychological sources to kind of back up our cases. But I just got really pulled into social psychology and this study of how people's behavior is shaped by the social norms around them and the uh, expectations and scripts and how inconsistent a lot of people's actions are with what they say their morals are or their beliefs. Mm-hmm. People do a lot of things that just make themselves uncomfortable because it's considered polite, I guess. And understanding how people worked in that way, I had to systematize it because it did not come to me intuitively. I couldn't read how people felt and I couldn't understand a lot of those social rules. And ultimately arrived at a place of realizing that a lot of them I never, I don't want to understand. I never want to, to really uh, buy in with a lot of a lot of rules that are um, you know, just about enforcing the gender binary, for instance, or just aspiring mm-hmm. to a kind of lifestyle that I never want to have, you know. Um, uh, so a lot of things that you've also kind of gone down the path of questioning in your in your line of work, too. Um, and and yeah, I think eventually I did pivot into the political psychology piece because I was just so interested in how people think about the world and think about systems and social forces that really do so much to box us in and, and to try and define us as as marginalized people mm-hmm. and just envisioning what would a world look like look like that was different from that yeah um, yeah it sounds like that has probably informed a lot of what you're working on now with your next book what is the title of that and when does that come out oh yeah so my next book um we d- we haven't arrived at a title yet but it's about a phenomenon um that I'm calling systemic shame which is this idea that um as individuals we hold a lot of personal blame and responsibility for structural issues mm-hmm. um and that can take a real toll on us and that can be everything from agonizing over the compost when you know Amazon is is doing so much pollution in the environment that it can feel like every choice we make is is hopeless in comparison. But it also is things like, you know, as a trans person, putting a lot of pressure on myself to pass and thinking that I have the responsibility of, you know, solving the problem of my own oppression by educating other people all the time and um, making sure that I present in a respectable way. And, you know, so of course that also connects to things like black people being tone policed and so many, many other issues. So, so that's the book. Um, I think it looks like we're probably coming out early next year. So early 2024, I think is the production schedule. Publishing is very slow, but um, I'm in. (laughs) Especially post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, (laughs) post-pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Post the beginning of, yeah, living with the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, but it's in edits. So I'm glad to be moving it forward and starting to be coherent, which is always good. It's on someone else's shoulders now to 
fine tune if that's the word I'm right words I'm thinking of and it'll come back to eventually that's currently where I'm at with my next project the uh, tarot deck and every little thing you do is magic uh, workbook which is yeah using tarot to try and help people uh, re- rewrite their personal narratives that's my that's my favorite thing I love that um, when did you first uh, was it through uh, becoming a doctor, uh, not a doctor in that you're cutting people apart, but you're cerebrally cutting people apart. <laughs> Was it through that that you uh, found your way into becoming an author? Um, I found my way into becoming an author through um, just kind of a sheer bolt of luck and also through really feeling passionate about a few things enough to post about it online a lot and write a lot of essays online about it. So um, the way that I became an author was that I had, um, I was teaching a really dead end job at a college that was treating a lot of their students really poorly, in my opinion, really underestimated these students who were mostly working adults and people struggling with a lot of personal life issues and challenges. And yet professors were writing them off as lazy because they would, you know, fall asleep in class because they had been working like a third shift before they had to come to class and things like that. And it just made me so enraged that I wrote this essay called Laziness Does Not Exist. That's all about, I think, a trauma that a lot of us have going to school as kids and as young adults where anytime we don't measure up to expectations, instead of the expectations being questioned or the context around us being examined, we get blamed um, for not having what it takes to succeed. And that essay connected with a lot of people. I think it's a really deep wound that a lot of us have for a lot of different reasons. And so then an agent reached out to me and said, have you thought about turning this into a book? And we talked about it and, you know, there was a lot there, you know, fortunately or unfortunately. and then it and then it became a book, and then I've been booking. <laughs> How did you get into doing journals? Um, similar deal. I'm an autistic person, though. When I fixate on a thing that is really important to me, I just keep creating and put it out into the world. So I started writing. Uh, well, <clears throat> and also I was just yeah struggling for most of my life. I did not want to be alive for many many years, and so. Uh, through a blog that I started in 2009, <clears throat> um, I just thought it's like I had the realization of if I feel this bad, I can't be the only person feeling this bad. There must be other people who feel this awful. And this isn't my own singular problem. It sucks. It hurts to be so depressed, to be so anxious, to feel so out of place in the world, to feel like I don't have community. But I bet there is community within that feeling. So I will create something to try and gather people together around feeling a little less alone um, and try and create tools for myself to explore who I am. So I started writing 52 lists as a free tool, essentially, on my blog. Uh, It went kind of viral. Um, I never finished it. I think I got to maybe like number 16. Um, And then... um, I was working in my very first storefront, sitting at the front desk. I was working six days a week. Uh, it was exhausting, and I didn't have time to answer my emails. Um, my now editor walked in and said, hey, I you know, follow your blog, and I really like what you're doing. Have you ever thought about turning it into a book? And I was like, that's a cool idea. No, I have not. And she was like, well, I would like you to write a book. 
and I love your voice. And I think whatever you write would be good. And I was like, that's, huh, didn't see this happening for me. And then, yeah, the day that the books came out, they printed 5,000 copies and it got picked up by Target, Barnes and Noble, Anthropology, Paper Source, and it just kind of blew up. So I never intended to become an author. I always wanted to be an artist, but <laughs> you know, I just kind of navigated the world and thought, uh, I'll, I don't know, I'll squeeze in wherever I can, wherever people will let me exist. I'll try it. Uh, so yeah, I still, I think, have a hard time believing that I'm an author. Mm. I think, I think of it more as I'm, yeah, lucky that I got an opportunity to explore something that is meaningful to me, that has helped heal me and hopefully have have given resources to someone else to help self-actualize. Yeah. I feel like I think something, oh, sorry. All right, go ahead. I was going to compliment you for a second, but. Oh, I was just going to say one thing that is really interesting that kind of tracks in both of our experiences with writing is that I know that I think this came up when I interviewed you for the book, or, or maybe it's things that you've said elsewhere, that like a lot of the, the journals and the themes that you kind of br- bring the lists around map onto something that you were working on at that point of time in your life. And that's just really true to my experience with writing as well, that I write about something because I'm dealing with it and because there isn't a book out there mm-hmm. about it. That um, I try to make what I wish had been there um, or, or I figure out how I feel about a topic as I go about writing. It. it seems like that's a similar thing in your creative process too. Yes, for sure. And it's interesting, like I'm sure that you're, uh, you know, the world tells us you're only respectable if you come to things from a very cerebral standpoint. And yes, uh, neurodivergent people sometimes have that skill, but also we have profound, deep, immense emotion too. Um, and usually we approach things from a cerebral perspective because we're trying to deal with these emotions that we don't have names for. Um, so I'm so curious to hear and to read uh, your next book in dealing with, uh, you know, shame, because I'm sorry, world, Brene Brown doesn't speak to me. I mm-hmm. love a lot of the research they ha- she has done. I think it's very, very validating to many, mostly white women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still feel like we're, <laughs> we're missing exploration around shame that speaks to the outsiders. Absolutely. You know, I cite some of Brene Brown's work in the book and and talk about some of the frameworks that I think are helpful, but reading her stuff, I always get very frustrated with the fact that she can point out how some sources of shame that her kind of target demographic, uh, you know, the shame that women feel that mothers feel how that's societal. She can kind of point to that sometimes and some aspects of beauty culture like that. Um, But she, she'll hit a wall as soon as it comes to the point of questioning something like fat phobia. Like Mm. she'll talk about how beauty standards are are superficial and kind of, she won't say capitalistic, but you know, capitalistic um, and socially engineered. But then she'll talk about somebody struggling with their diet or struggling with their weight as if it's their weight. That's the struggle rather than social Mm -hmm. stigma. And so it's, you know, there's this, there's this core nugget there. That's, that's great, but it's not, it's not taken to its logical conclusion um, yeah. of really questioning these systems. So that's, that was a really important thing that I wanted to set out to do here for sure. Yeah, I, I can't wait. So my partner is uh, in her vigilant year of getting her PhD um, and she is focused, focused on um, how the, how the health system uh, is set up 
to not support uh, what? How would I describe what she is studying? She's focused on how diets are bullshit and mm-hmm. obesity is kind of a myth. Like this is all, uh, this is all the whole narrative of you need to lose weight probably does uh, more to hurt your health than actually support it. Um, so I'm sure she's going to love reading your your next work as well. This is, I feel like, uh, there's just so much to unpack and explore in the world when it comes to self-acceptance and true wellness. Wellness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that both of our books, books uh, mine, I think, sit, can, my, the people who like my book the most are the people I was raised to be, but I am mm. not. Interesting. And do you ever feel, because I feel like I have that sometimes too, and it's kind of a dysphoric experience for me. Like, that, Do you feel that tension at all? Like, does that does that trouble you ever, or is it hard to say yeah. sometimes? It's, it's interesting. It's like, uh, I feel like I am a minister to my past selves. I mm. am... <laughs> trying to provide resources to the struggling former me. And I see it in you and you and you and you and you, and I want to give you freedom, but you're going to figure it out yourself. Here are some tools. Um, so the demographic that buys my book the most are uh, Midwestern suburban white moms. Mm-hmm. I was raised to become that person. I have no hate towards that person. I have siblings who are that person. Uh, I have close friends who are that person. Some of my best friends got married at 18, 19, and 20. One of them was planning their senior project, was planning their wedding. So uh, I've definitely written books that speak to the culture that I grew up within. But I needed those books to get myself out because it was not a culture that supports a non-binary, autistic little freak community so I'm sure that you too probably I'm uh, I feel like probably unmasking autism I've had so many people reach out to me from reading your book uh, saying they really resonated with my story and that they feel like they went on a similar path as me um, so I'm sure that your books are sitting in the hands of lots of people who are currently trapped within a system that doesn't work for them and they're looking for a resource out. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that framing of uh, that you just shared of ministering to past selves because sometimes there's something about me where I just want to move on to the next idea and then the next one and then the next one, you know, maybe that's just a creative thing. Maybe it's just my own uh, impatience that I'm working on by quitting caffeine and other things. (laughs) But, but so sometimes I, I uh, I get frustrated when um, when people are, are way farther behind on their journey or, or questioning something that I've kind of questioned years in the past, and I don't want to even really look at it anymore because I just feel so relieved to be free of it anymore. And so then to have people who really like my work kind of come with these kind of questions and, and reactions that are just reflections of, of you know, a, a darker period in my past or a harder period in my past it's hard sometimes to always be kind of patient and present Mm -hmm. with them for where they are at. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though that's, you know, that's the right thing to to do. And that's the human thing to do. I think maybe it is because it reminds me of my past self that it is sometimes like, Oh, I thought we were past this already. It's like, no, 
yeah. none of us are ever ever fully past it and we're all in this together you know mm-hmm. absolutely because there are so many things you know if i really put myself back in time at different ages or just different points in my life there are so many things that if you said it to me now i'd be like yeah sure but at the time it was mind-blowing and it changed my world and so mm-hmm. yeah i want to honor people when they are in that state of like having their mind blown, a huge, a huge uh, thing that I can attribute to being autistic is I am so gullible. I am so trusting uh, and things in at least me in the past before realizing I was autistic, I was having my mind blown every second because I took everything as true. Now I can be more decisive and uh, figure out what is right and true for me. So my mind is blown less often. And also the more I've researched things, the less thrilling things are. Uh, But yeah, I think, yeah, it's a challenge for us when you have researched something heavily to still show up. uh, Imagine yourself kind of back in that old self alongside someone who is getting so excited about something that you said. At some point you were excited about that thing that you learned that you now it, it's normal for you. Right. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And change is a really slow process. And I have to always remember that, that like I, I initially just had certain questions about, for example, just how academia, academia decides who to promote that were just kind of really mm-hmm. small, specific questions. Like that doesn't seem fair. Why, mm-hmm. is, why are publications the only thing that matters when we're here to teach and teaching evaluations barely matter at all? That doesn't seem right. You know, like these small questions and then it eventually builds and builds to, oh, our entire system of measuring like labor and who's a worthy person is completely fucked. Like <laughs> this is a very deep and pervasive thing. And, you know, the it took me- system. Mm-hmm. The grading system, yes. I mean, schools, and now I'm at the point of even just questioning schools as institutions, right? Like, mm-hmm. Why do we force children to go through a very narrow particular path that does not work for most of their bodies and brains, right? Yeah. But it took me years to get there, and it was step by step. So then, you know, I'm going to encounter people who are just now for the first time saying, these grades don't seem fair. This evaluation system doesn't seem fair. Um, my boss isn't treating me fairly, and they just see, you know, just one small pinprick of, of you know, all of the light that's going to come in. Um, and yeah, change is tough, but it's, it's nice to be part of it at least. Mm-hmm. Within your, so when did you first become a professor? I, um, started teaching, um, when I was still in grad school, I started picking up some kind of adjunct gigs all over town. Um, so I guess I was, you know, a professor an instructor, you know, depending on how a school wants to classify it or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, and then after I finished grad school, I was really um, struggling just uh, teaching at sometimes three or sometimes four different campuses every semester, just trying to get by. It was really brutal. I had really bad laryngitis from just speaking that much. It was it was rough. Um, sometimes I'd be commuting back and forth from campuses to campus from like 8 a.m. till, you know, after 9 p.m. Um, in a single day. But then finally, one of the schools that I taught at... Um, Loyola's School of Continuing Professional Studies did have um, some more permanent positions open up, and I was, or, or you know, lasting, you know, contracted 
health insurance, not as abusive of positions, let's at least say that. <laughs> and I was able to get one. Um, and that really gave me a lot of life stability, really for the first time ever. Like I had a regular sleep schedule because I had yeah. a place that I knew I was going to go every day and, and some yeah. pri- an office that was private, just yeah. lifestyle improvement. I think that when you're someone who's not deep, deep, deep in academia, uh, it's so easy to see it from the outside as like, oh, I'm sure that if you have the title of doctor or professor, your life must just be so fancy and easy. Uh, to peer into it now with a partner who's in the PhD program, I'm like, damn, you want to treat me like shit. Like, they really do. So you've devoted yourself to the education system. You've spent so many years. And then what do you get out of it? Mostly just your brain realizing like, wait a second. Again, this is not set up to support me. Why did I do this? Um, How has uh, being autistic informed how you teach or how you treat your students or uh, grade or the assignments you give? I think I've always been way more likely to see certain set in stone supposed rules as bendable or breakable. And I also am really comfortable with criticizing things. Those are two uh, gifts of autism that I definitely can wear proudly. And I think that has really informed my teaching practice for the better. Um, Even if it's often riled up a lot of my colleagues, um, I for example, have just always really felt, I'm a very fault-finding person, I'm very critical of systems, and I like to call things as they are. I have a hard time not calling things as they are, right? Or at least how I see them. And so when we talk about something like ethics in psychology, in let's say a research class, I've always felt that's a really important time to sit down and be really frank about things like, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or experiments that we've done as psychologists on prisoners who had no ability to withdraw consent or to consent Mm -hmm. in the first place. And to really say, this is a part of who we are. This is a part of how we have been trained to think about people and the knowledge base that we have. And we cannot wash our hands of this. This is not just some weird aberration or this random person who was evil, who happened to be a psychologist, who we can say, mm-hmm. oh, we don't claim them. We have to claim this and really sit with it. Um, and this is uh, our legacy, you know, and something we have to, to change. And, and certainly um, I talk about that with regard to things like ableism and, and um, the stigma that comes with having a mental illness label stuck on you too, for example. And when I talk about things like that, sometimes other professors tell me, oh, you're being really negative on the field you're no students are going to want to stick with the major if you talk to them like that. It's a real downer. And it's like, <laughs> maybe you're creating space for students. Maybe you are validating them and making them more interested in coming and working with you. Yeah, yeah. Or at least I think people should get to have realistic expectations of what they're dealing with, too, you know? Um, so when people ask me for graduate school advice, I kind of tell them the lowdown of, like, listen, I was making $14,000 a year having to teach and and do research. And it was really, really difficult. It worked out so that it was worth it for me, but it's a very hard shift and it's not for everybody. Um, Just things like that, you know, Um, sometimes you're bursting people's bubbles and bursting some of the lies that we tell ourselves about what we're doing and who we are. But I think that's really important. And I think it empowers us. Um, And in a similar vein, I've always been prone to questioning, does this really need to have a rigid due date? Does this assignment have to be a 10-page 
APA style paper, or is there another way of expressing yourself that makes sense for this, you know, this skill that I'm trying to, that I'm here to like impart. Um, and, and that flexibility, I think, again, it's not always popular. Uh, sometimes people think it means you're not being rigorous enough. You're not being a, mm-hmm. a difficult, you know, uh, a- academic intellectual, but I think overall it's really helped a wider array of people be comfortable in the space. Not everyone, it's because academia is still very inaccessible, but I think it's yeah. helped. Yeah. And there's, you know, uh, it's obvious that many people learn in many different ways. So it's okay if the system that you're building suits one group and doesn't suit another, as long as there are other places for that person to go. Uh, you are you are inherently by existing challenging um, one system that was set up to apply to everybody and so you're creating space for more people Mm -hmm. and if that original system works for you stick with it and if it doesn't come on over right yeah And and it just leads to a better educational experience when there's a wider array of people and abilities and life experiences there like it's so strange that we think rigorous means really, really difficult for certain groups of people, really, really easy for certain groups of people, and everything has to be done the same way all the time. That's not going to make anyone a better thinker. No. Yeah. When I was in, when I was in high school, uh, I uh, once married and then divorced a very lovely man who I went to high school with. He was the kid who he wanted all of the assignments that were just felt to me like filler assignments because he could mm-hmm. do them quick and fast. And for me, they were so challenging because I couldn't wrap my head around why I'm doing this. So he got like a 4.5 in high school. I got a 3.3. Does that make either one of us better thinkers? No. Does it make either one of us more intelligent? No. No. It's just we're navigating a system and my brain says, why are you, why are you trying to make me do this thing? It doesn't matter to me. Uh, and it also doesn't matter to you. It's just filler. I'm not doing it. And I don't care if my grade is bad because I know it does, it's not attached to my value. But he has a different brain and he says, I want that 4.5. I'll do the filler work. That fulfills me. All right. <laughs> There's, there are so many ways to navigate the education system and to derive value. Uh, I like my way of de- deriving value for myself. Um, and I love that you, it sounds like you are trying to create opportunity for people to define their value in uh, ways other than what one system says is right. Yeah, I absolutely try. Um, I think there's always more work to be done and uh, to kind of tear down some of these planks that are still kind of boxing students in but uh, there's there's just so much difficulty and stress that we put on people for no reason um just thinking that that is that that compliance and conformity and like being motivated by checking off little boxes and getting the head pat for it which is a fine thing to want right like humans are socially motivated feeling like you're you know getting approval for for doing good things that's not a bad thing but um, we just do so much to reward compliance and almost nothing else. Yeah. Well, I feel like that kind of leads into the list that I asked you to look at, to reflect on that you've already filled out perhaps, or that you have thought about filling out now. What is that list? Yes. So it's from um, 52 list for bravery. 
and it is um, list 10, list the dreams you have for others, um, which was, it was nice to revisit. I think I, the last time I uh, went through um, this book, because I got it right around the time that I was interviewing you for Unmasking Autism, so it was winter of 2021, and so it was hard <laughs> to dream of anything other than just <laughs> I want to be able to see people again, and I want people to be able to see each other again and to yeah. have hope. Um, and so filling it out now, it, it's still in some ways the same idea, but it's a lot more specific and grounded. So. Yeah, so should I just read through? Yeah. Okay. Um, I dream of everyone that I love having a comfortable home that they can return to at the end of each day where they feel belongingness, inspiration, and love. Um, I dream of my sister being more widely embraced for her wonderful creativity and recognized for her natural performance abilities. I dream of my friend Melanie getting the wildlife restoration job she's been applying for and of her coming to accept the love that she receives from other people as what she deserves. Um, I dream of my friends escaping insecurity, both financial and social, and of them cutting ties with those that undermine and manipulate them. I dream of them finding peace with themselves. I dream of my mom finding something that, mo that moves her and motivates her at this stage in her life, of her finding new love and new friends. I dream of my friends with children finding relief from the strain and isolation that so often comes with new parenthood and being able to build communities where their children are free and their own minds are too. Um, I dream of my community stitching itself back together again and finding new ways to bond, support one another, and share in the joy of one another's companionship and in building things together. I dream of the roads and walls and calendars that separate us receding. I dream of everyone stuck in a dead-end job or a stifling marriage clawing their way out and back into themselves. And I dream of all my trans and disabled friends finding the voice within them that can say things like, no, and stop that, and I feel uncomfortable, and I need, and this is what I believe. Mm. That's a lovely list. It's like, mm. makes me teary-eyed. It's just, uh, I think that, yeah, I can see. So I love that that was the list for this week of the year uh, because I think it just parallels so well with the person that you are and what motivates you in your work. And I can see all of that sentiment, all that you care about, all the love that you have for gifts, get, all the love that you have to give flowing so beautifully through all the things you create and all the work that you do. Uh, you truly feel like somebody who has so much love and compassion to give and it is injected into all that you do even if you're doing it from a very cerebral standpoint there is still so much heart oh thank you that's a really nice compliment because sometimes i can feel so trapped in the cerebral that i feel like i can't connect via the heart you know even though it's there and it's and i just feel so much you know so yeah. um so I that's that really like, nice to hear so glad I think that is like a um I don't know throughout my life people have called me divisive that's a word that people have called me and I've always been like I never intend to be divisive I just speak up when something doesn't feel right and it's only divisive because the world I'm existing in is conflicting with uh, 
like, especially growing up within religion, uh, hearing the message of like, do unto others as you want done to you. Um, and then seeing people being awful to each other. I just like, I just see, I'm not the divisive one. I'm pointing out what is conflicting outside of us. (laughs) Um, I think that is like a weird internal thing that happens. I don't know. How am I connecting this to the experience of like going really cerebral with things, but like there is so much heart there. Uh, Yeah. The world doesn't want to allow things that appear to be opposite to exist alongside each other, but also the world is so contradictory. And I think the contradiction is so beautiful. Things that don't make sense sometimes make more sense to me. They make me feel more free. So I think I see that in who you are and what you do. Uh, I think in many ways you might appear really tough, but I can see such a kind, sensitive, sweet, tender person. Uh, I think you're able to like go hard and rage and critique things because you feel and love so hard. Um, and all of that is so valuable for other people to hear and to see themselves within and give themselves permission to uh, be. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's tough because autistics get so stereotyped as cold, as manipulative, like you said earlier, as um, as difficult, you know, just for stating a basic need or a perception. And so I think many of us, we spend years trying to overcome that and trying to soften ourselves or, or at least facing a lot of external pressure to say this thing more diplomatically or don't say it at all is usually what people are actually asking a lot of the time uh, when they ask you know, us to change how we deliver something. It's that they don't want to hear that hard truth or it would require unpacking things a lot further um, in a way that can't be handled in a single, I don't know, brainstorming meeting or whatever. Um, and so it's, it's hard to kind of like reclaim that self back and to not, um, to not become like an edgelord about it either, to go too far into the opposite direction of like, well, I can't win with other people. They're always going to view me as negative and, and judgmental anyway. So maybe I'll just lean into that and be abrasive. It's like, no, you know, it takes a lot of, um, just kind of internal work and, and just ongoing unmasking work even for me to kind of find that balance of I'm, I need to be present as my real self and say and speak up for the things that I care about. And doing that means sometimes people are going to think that I'm overly negative or I'm difficult or divisive um, when it's coming from a place of such like heart. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the like nicey nice go along to get along presentation that feels so heartless to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that looks like a mask to me. Yeah. I sense something <laughs> performative happening here. Yes. Um, so I think I'd love to kind of keep talking about your list. I think it's uh I think I framed that question as dreams because uh I think in my past I thought that I or I hoped that I could kind of control other people's experiences if I just worked hard enough I could make their lives easier especially my younger sisters um have you in your life uh battled with that feeling of 
holding compassion, wanting better for someone, but also grappling with the fact that it's out of your control. Oh, yeah. I think for me, even to the point of just being downright like codependent or um, not minding my own business in, in friendships and things like that, where I would get really worked up over, let's say, a friend who kept making, from my point of view, the same bad decisions with people that they were dating and hurting themselves over and over again and wanting to like shake sense into them so that they could see that they deserved better and then delivering it in a way that just completely demolished their feelings and made them feel invalidated and and made it harder for them to talk to me about the things that they were going through. You know, that was a mistake I made in my early twenties with a, a really meaningful friendship in my life that I, I had to really learn the hard way that like, just because you feel really strongly that you care about someone and that you're hurt by seeing them hurt, you still can't commandeer their life. You can't make them see something the way you want them to see it. And you actually really don't know what the right way is of seeing something is from the outside, no matter how much you think you do. Um, so that's something I've really struggled with, learning to be more just present for someone emotionally and trusting them and their own autonomy and helping to foster that um, so that they can arrive at it at wherever they want to arrive themselves, not necessarily where I think they need to arrive. Um, and not trying to fix people's problems for them, especially when they did not ask. <laughs> because a lot, of times, a lot of times I thought they were asking and they were more asking for someone to just be, be there for them emotionally, not solve their problem. And so that was hard to learn. Um, and there's, there's also something about you, you mentioning the framing of dreaming that reminds me of something that um, I think it was Lindsay Gibson wrote, um, who wrote the book, um, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about changing from shifting a statement about the past from should to wish. So mm -hmm. this person should have done this. Um, they should have treated me better. They should have done this for me. And just going to, I wish I had grown up with a parent who did this, but I didn't. Yeah. Like, I wish I had this kind of love, but I don't right now. And there is a real sorrow sometimes with having a wish or having a dream. But I think it's good to be able to just kind of hold it as this precious thing that you don't necessarily have control over mm -hmm. and to just be sad that it isn't true, that you're yeah. not going to get what yeah. you wish for like, always or that, yeah, it's out of your hands. Yeah. I think it's almost, uh, yeah, it's like it's uh, harder to accept that that something is just a dream or a wish, but then I think it does give you a container to grieve. Whereas if you just fixate on should, all you can do is just kind of go up against a wall and continually be frustrated. Sometimes we do need a container to sit in and to just accept that we must grieve, accept that it is uh, not a thing that just we're waiting on to come true, but it's a hope it's it's elusive it's fluffy it's cloud-like we can't grab it we can't grasp it but we can we can we're allowed to be sad <laughs> and maybe it'll come true and really surprise us and we'll be grateful later um something that i oh, what was i just gonna ask you something i'll take it back to a question i had earlier uh have you studied at all um how addiction can kind of show up within the autistic and neurodiver neurodivergent community. Uh, this yeah. is something I've been really curious about because growing up, uh, you know, I looked at 
both my mom's parents died when she was in high school. She was an only child. And all I heard was that my, they were addicts. They were alcoholics and they partied and they were horrible people. Then understanding myself, observing other people I know who are neurodivergent. I'm like, wait, is, is it the addiction that's a problem or is it something within themselves that they're not? There's no validation. There's no resource. There's no, so of course they're going to cling to something that fills them. I'm just curious to hear what you've researched or learned. Yeah, there's so much to be said about how neurodivergent people use substances to achieve a variety of different ends. Um, There's quite a few people that I talked to in Unmasking Autism who they used substances, particularly drinking, um, to blunt sensory issues or social anxiety, for example. Mm -hmm. And you see that with people smoking weed or, you know, using any kind of sedative um, pretty often. And a lot of times this ends up covering up and and masking a autism diagnosis because a person gets identified based on the most obvious behavior that is a hindrance to other people, not um, in terms of the person's interior suffering. And so if you're showing up drunk to work, people are going to notice that it's going to have consequences in your life. And then you get written off or even get funneled through the psychiatric system as someone with a substance abuse disorder, not necessarily looking into the underlying trauma or sensory Mm -hmm. issues or social anxiety that might have led a person to reach for those things in the first place. And I spoke to a lot of people who, for them, getting sober or getting a a relationship to substances that they're more happy with uh, required them to get more comfortable with being more openly autistic. Um, Mm -hmm. Jesse Meadows talks about, um, I think they just literally said to like, stop being an alcoholic, I had to become more autistic. Um, it's just not negotiable. Um, and then on the flip side, too, there are a lot of ways that um, that neurodivergent people are drawn to substances and use substances in ways that are, you know, neutral or benign, right? Um, because it's, mm-hmm. it's a tool, it's a thing humans have been interested in for, you know, since as long as we've known how to ferment or to eat random mushrooms that we find. So I do know a lot of <laughs> autistic people with trauma and things like that who really swear by um, using psychedelics to help kind of process a trauma or a repressed emotional block again because a lot of us are pretty bad at at validating our own emotions and identifying our own emotions because we've had them invalidated so much so that's another avenue where you see it a lot too Um, and of course the the lines here are are porous there's no clear-cut line where you know smoking weed to relax at the end of the day suddenly becomes a problem right like it's 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 so contextual but i think yeah many of us end up reaching for it, even though we also tend to be hit by substances, especially hard compared to non-autistic people. Yeah, it does seem like um, the world is aware of substances as a tool, as some sort of container, as uh, they're in small doses, they're fun and they're a helper in big doses, they're bad. Um, To me, it makes sense, of course, that anybody who is struggling or marginalized when they are not given uh, tools within the greater system of the country or the county or the home that they live in, of course, they're going to seek out a different tool that's accessible to uh, give them space to explore themselves. Um, For a while, I definitely smoked a lot of weed. I did not when I was young because I grew up in a weed town. Everybody smoked weed. So I needed to be defiant against what was normal. So I was not a weed smoker. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Then I went to college, went to a Christian college. Everybody was smoking weed for the first time. And I was like, oh my God, again? Okay. No, still not smoking weed. So in my late 20s, when everybody stopped bugging me about smoking weed, that's when I explored. And I do think within small doses, it was helpful uh, in my unmasking. It was like the first time I gave myself permission to appear stupid. I was so afraid of appearing stupid to other people. I was so rigid and controlled, uh, severely burdened by anxiety. And weed gave me that space to like, okay, I'm going to smoke some weed. I'm going to feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to lean into it. It was helpful in that space. But then in 2020, when the world shut down, it was too much. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think it's just, I feel like I want to read more about, um, about those, yeah, the parallels of neurodivergence and addiction, because, you know, I also see like, uh, being obsessive about something, uh, culture raises us to be obsessive as long as it is productive and supports capitalism. Uh, capitalism really wants you to be obsessive about very specific things. Uh, and then if you have a Coke habit, as long as it supports your productivity, you're fine. But if it goes a different way, then you're bad. Uh, that's a big criticism that I have. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, a lot of autistics, we, we tend to like live in extremes in certain ways in terms of like having special interests, in terms of having really intense emotions. And it's, it's so interesting how certain kinds of extremity like workaholism are, of course, totally culturally sanctioned. But um, if the way that you escape your suffering is something else, like playing video games or Dungeons and Dragons with your friends or smoking weed, obviously that's really like reviled and looked down on after a certain point. Um, and yeah, it's, um, and it's also just, it's, it's so interesting how like paradoxical effect, the effects of a lot of these things are. Um, just going back to what you were saying about using weed to unmask, it's it's so interesting that um, it can it can make you feel as somebody who's only started kind of getting into like smoking weed in the, in the last few years and then kind of been like okay I think I've had kind of enough I need to hit the pedal on this a little bit it can like help you be more in tune with your body and make you feel more comfortable in my case being disappointing to other people and not bringing the like the energy to the party. Like if there's, if they have nothing to say, maybe I just won't actually say anything, you know, mm-hmm. and it's okay if, I, or if it's okay for me to say no in a way that'll make the moment awkward, like let the moment be awkward um, yeah. and don't paper over it. Like that's been very freeing. And at the same time, it's a very dissociative drug, you know, and we're living in a very dissociative time where if I'm, if I don't take steps to like engineer my day around seeing friends and getting out of the house and being active, I could be, in this like digitally mediated false world doing my work for like so long that I lose all touch with my body and like Mm -hmm. smoking weed at the end of the day doesn't necessarily help with that feeling disconnected (laughs) and isolated thing, especially if you get the couch lock from that. Um, So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all paradoxical, helpful, but then it's all about the context and whether our other needs are being met, you know, they can't, and I think that's true for like psychopharmaceuticals just as much too. Like mm-hmm. they can be very helpful, but they can't change the like material conditions around us. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel like, um, how long would you say you stayed 
very, very indoors. Or bigger question, what is your relationship with the great indoors as a neurodivergent person? Ooh, that's a great question. And I don't think that's one of the... Life. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I love that question. Um, so, so I was definitely a very indoorsy kid, but I was an indoorsy kid who got a lot of little comments from my parents about how I should be outside enjoying the beautiful weather, you know, or I should be outside playing with the neighbor kids. So I would often resolve that by just dragging my laptop outside in the backyard <laughs> <laughs> and like running a cord up to like the little like plug by the wall. And then, you know, you couldn't say I wasn't outside enjoying the weather, but I was on, you know, the Invader Zim message forums and, sh- and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, just posting away. Um, so I've always had this weird like dual sense of both like I, I want to read, I want to escape, I don't know how to connect with other people, I don't know how to initiate. But I also feel bad about that. So I'm going to do my little private things outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to this day, that's kind of true. That was my one big coping mechanism during the pan- uh, pandemic. Well, not my only one, but it, but one I definitely leaned on a lot was working outside, writing outside. I would bring my weights outside and lift weights outside. I would take really long walks. You know, any activity that I could do outside, even if it was solitary, I would bring out into a park or, or the outdoors. Mm-hmm. But um, at some point, I realized I needed to actually work on being more mindful of my surroundings in a more tactile way and just more present in my life. And I think that's something that that nature and being outside is is has been helpful with, even though I'm not an outdoorsy person per se. I love long walks. I love looking at architecture. I love looking at cemeteries. Um, and and as I already mentioned in the list, I have a friend who works in a lot of forest restoration work. So that's gotten me a little bit more exposed to being able to identify trees and thinking about the ecosystem and noticing wild animals and things like that. So that's been good. Do you feel like uh, the pandemic validated some uh, enjoyment of the indoors or do you think it kind of set you back socially or anything like that? It's a mixed bag. I remember when the pandemic first hit, I felt a relief mixed in with the cosmic horror, of course, a relief that I would no longer have to like worry about whether I was being a loser. This is like an Mm -hmm. absurd fear that I carry with me that Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a loser. What does that mean? It's very absurd for an almost 35 year old man to be consumed (laughs) with this stuff, but you know, we internalize what we internalize when we're young. Yeah. So it was nice to not have to worry about, oh, am I going out on the weekends often enough? Am I making enough plans with people? Am I missing out on something? Am I you know, making these social choices that show that I'm a well-adjusted social person who's worthy of love and all of these things? It was kind of nice relief to not have to measure my life by that for a little while. Um, and then I did find lots of really really helpful ways to socialize with friends of mine online that were really an emotional touchstone during the pandemic. Things like, mm-hmm. you know, watching movies together, going to virtual concerts, playing like Jackbox games online, you know, every week. Those things helped, you know. Um, but I think I think there was still a social toll, but it's so hard to tell whether it's a toll or if it's just a making peace with like how I actually work, right? You know what yeah. I mean? It's like yeah. maybe maybe I can be okay with just not putting myself in uncomfortable situations all the time or with not yep. trying to be something I'm not. 
it's hard to know where the balance is between what is a skill that I've lost and what's something that I was pretending to be that now I just don't have it in me to pretend to be anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a confusing thing. I'm 36. May I ask how old you are? I'm 34. I'm 35 next month. So I'm going to yeah. round number. It's nice. It's nice up here. Way up here in the, the old age. I just got my first gray hair. It's very exciting. But <laughs> I think it's a especially strange thing to have gone through the pandemic in our early 30s, early to mid 30s, because that's already an age where you're kind of assessing like, oh, do I need that in my life anymore? Do I have the energy for that? Uh, was I just performing? Is that a fun performance? All of these different things to then be <laughs> just have like culture taken away from you publicly <laughs> to then yeah. sit yourself and figure it out. I think um, especially in 2020 when I was just overly analyzing what being performative is versus performance, or I think I was just obsessing over what is performative and lumping mm. performance into that, uh, kind of de- denying myself the good parts of just a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while, really probably in the last year to realize like, okay, what is good performance? What is healing performance? What is healthy performance? Uh, what do I want to do? What do I not want to do? What did I get good at, but also was drain- draining me running a storefront? I became very good at being charming, which was not who I was for the majority of my life at all. <laughs> people said that I, when I was in high school, I'd be walking down the hall and people come to me and be like, what's wrong? Just because my face just looked so. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I got really good at looking friendly and happy and cheerful. Um, and yeah, I think within a setting of like performing music or maybe doing theater, I might still enjoy performing, but uh, outside of that, I don't want to. Everyday life, I don't want to. Yeah, I think that that distinction between, you know, performance and, you know, performativeness or performativity, it's really important, I think, because we have, most of us, social selves, like who we are and what comes out of us is shaped by the people around us. And that's not always a bad thing. I think for Mm -hmm. autistic people, especially mass autistic people, we associate people with surveillance and with being corrected and with not feeling free to be ourselves. And that is so often the case for us, but it's also through relationships with other people and social settings and situations that challenge us and bring out new parts of us that we expand and we see different sides of ourselves Mm -hmm. um, and get to perform certain sides of ourselves and kind of flex those muscles. And so there is a part of me that really misses when I had the energy to do things. Like I used to, you know, be involved in the local comedy scene, kind of perform writing live at events. And many of those events just don't exist anymore. Yeah. And even even the ones that do, it's hard for me to drag myself to and to put in the effort um, when I have the writing at home that I need to do and and things like that. And ultimately you do need that social self, that self that's reflected in others. And that was one of the big things that I lost during the pandemic was a sense of connection to the queer community and the trans mm-hmm. community. I, I still had my friends, but I didn't have spaces where I could be legible and, um, 
and this is something that I talk more about in the book, that I was in a relationship at the time with someone who, as I was transitioning, was was not attracted to me anymore. And the relationship mm-hmm. was degrading. And that's who I was living with during the pandemic. And it was really hard for us both. You know, it, nobody's fault. It was just a really miserable, invalidating experience. Mm-hmm. And so it's only through going out to kind of your spaces where you are visible. And you are sometimes kind of doing the performance of, oh, I'm going to wear this little gay outfit and get a little attention, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever. Amplify certain elements of myself. That's how you get to still be in touch with that side of yourself. And I think that yeah. can be really empowering when it's something that you choose and it's something that's being germinated in you rather than demanded of you, I guess. Yeah. I think especially if you are um, a late in life diagnosed neurodivergent person, um, especially if you are a queer person or waking up to your queerness and trying to figure out what does that mean and what do I look like and how do I feel in my body, all of that. It requires performance. Uh, it requires putting on costumes. Like I've said my whole life, <laughs> I've been like, I got best dressed in high school, even though I was so shy and awkward because every day I was like, I'm putting on my costume. Like what we wear is a costume. How we style our hair is a costume. We are perform all of the things we're doing that we're applying to ourselves. Uh, yeah, it is kind of an important a performance, but we need those spaces. We need to explore these superficial realms so that we can figure out what feels right and what feels true. Uh, and it's going to require us trying on some some costumes that don't feel right until it's right. Uh, and I think that's so important for people to to have that permission to, yeah, you deserve to play. You deserve to explore superficiality. There's a reason why the superficial exists because dang, it's really exhausting inside of here and I need some fluff to play with and explore so that I can find connection between the insides and the outside so I can relieve the inside uh, with the stuff I play with on the outside. Um, I think that is an exciting part of, uh, you know, having routine boosters <laughs> is so we can go out and we can put on our costumes and see what feels fun and sexy and cool today. And I might feel different tomorrow and that's all okay. Yeah, humans need play. of all At all ages, we need play. And we have that really drilled out of us. And that's, that's something that we seek out through putting on a killer outfit and going to someplace just because you want to be seen in that outfit and see other people. Uh, it's something that people explore through, you know, fantasy, through kink, through role-playing games, through creativity and art, you know, and and we are always changing who we are and how we find ways of mediating that. It's just forever changing, and play is a really good way to kind of find and follow those changes as they're happening, mm-hmm. I've found. Definitely, and I'm, I think, you know, tying it back to your next book, I think it's play is such a... Uh, a way to test our shame to kind of poke at our shame and say like, does this shame need to exist here? Can I play? Can I just play? Can I just test and see, will it eradicate this shame that I have or will it transform this shame into something exciting and fun to Uh. mess around with? Um, I think kink is a great example of that. Um, Uh Playing. Yeah. uh, Going to conventions and dressing up in different costumes or going to Comic-Con or whatever. That's uh, mm-hmm. things that you might have once held shame about or been bullied about in the past. Now suddenly you're in community of people who are like, yeah, we love 
your thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> once with shame is now celebrated. Yes. Um, that is, that definitely feels like core to both of our work too, is uh, the transformation of shame to celebration. Um, and that's what I've definitely found in reading your books, in listening to you talk, in observing what you dissect on Instagram. Um, and I can't wait for your next book. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, I'm right in the thick of it right now. So I'm, I'm like consumed with self doubt, but that happens with every book. I thought unmasking autism was, was trash. And then (laughs) a lot of people saw themselves reflected in a lot of the stuff I was dealing with and that you were dealing with and things were figured out. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have a lot more conversations with people about shame and how they find their way out of it or through it or throw some glitter on it. Yes. Yes. Just literally just put some glitter on it. It'll be a little bit better. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was so nice chatting with you. I hope that lots of people uh, heard little things that make them feel a little bit better about who they are, a little more empowered, a little more inspired and excited to explore who they are through, through all that you've shared. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so nice talking to you. I just love the way your mind works and yeah, I feel like we've been on a lot of similar journeys and it's nice to talk to someone who's been through that. We'll keep hanging outside of this little digital space. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening.